Comrades, friends, welcome to the People's School. The board decided to have a little different kind of class tonight. We won't be reading from a text. A lot of interactive discussion. It is a type of thing where there is no such thing as right or wrong. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about when it deals with the people on the phone call. Because we want to know what your views are. Simple definitions of words. We're going to be talking about how people have changed over the years from the 1930s to the present. The character of individuals, what words meant at one point when our party was started and what words mean to the comrades today. The same words, same spelling. We feel that there's a different meaning for today's generation and for the last 50, 60 years from what it was 80 years ago. So I'm going to give out some key points. Number one, thou, D-O-W. Next one, the word obligation, O-B-L-I-G-A-T-I-O-N. Next, a pledge, P-L-E-D-G-E. -E. Next, a promise, P-R-O-M-I-S-E. And the last one, a contract, C-O-N-T-R-A-C-T. This is the first words we're going to be dealing with. And this is really the whole essence of a Bolshevik party. And we've come to this decision after we've gone through certain experiences in our party where we don't understand why people are reacting differently than what they did 50 years ago, 40 years ago. That's why we're going through tonight's class. A vow, if you look in the dictionary, it's a commitment. That's what a vow is. Commitment between the person and the ideology, the religion, the political group, even to another individual. What does a vow mean? And why do people take vows? I think many of us haven't even thought about this anymore. A vow to us is very important. The most famous that came to my mind was the marriage vow. When two people are getting married, even in a secular ceremony, the words changed a little bit from the time of the 17-1800s when it came to the woman's position in the marriage or the man's position. But the vow part is still there. It's still there. It's called the marriage vows for a reason. And it also is a contract. So on a non-ideological level, we want to understand what these words mean and then apply it to our party ideology. So a vow, as I mentioned, is a promise. I vow to love, honor, and you could say respect each other in a marriage ceremony. Boy Scouts and other scouting groups years ago had a vow, which they hold up three of their fingers, and if I remember correctly, they vowed to their country, something, and to God. There were three sections. And that was the vow they took to become Boy Scouts. Well, in our party, we have a pledge, which is the same as a vow. Everybody signs it. Everybody dated it. It was on the application. And it says pledge, P-L-E-D-G-E. -E. It actually says that. And in it, it says... I take this pledge 
to give the best that is in me to the service of my class, the working class. This was written in 1935, by the way, and we still use it today. A contract, when you sign this, it's a contract between you and the party. That's what it is. That's why it's a signature and dated. At the end, it says, I pledge myself to consistently remain a vigilant, notice the words, which means on guard, a vigilant and firm defender of the Leninist line of our party to ensure the establishment of a scientific socialism in these United States and to transfer power from the capitalist class to the working class. That's the last sentence. Honesty. It's a form of character. Nobody's forcing anybody to join any political party. Nobody should force anybody to join a religion. It's all voluntary. Certain things you cannot help. You're born into a country, let's say France. You are automatically a person who has an allegiance to France because that's where you're born. And it's the same kind of thing with other country you're born in. So when you're born into a country, you don't have a choice. But you should have a choice with a political movement or a religious movement. Also, when we were young, we went to school. I don't know how many, I think everybody did. We were taught a pledge to the country. It was called Pledge of Allegiance. And so we were taught from a very early age the idea of pledge or vow, even to the country. So I gave you examples, Boy Scout pledge, marriage pledge, national pledge, etc. That's the definition of pledge, promise, contract. Nobody's forcing you. It's voluntary. When you join a political party or a religion, you can come and you can go at your own will. But even with that, it still entails a responsibility on your side. And it implies a bond, B-O-N-D. Remember, many, many years ago, when people used to agree on something, they used to shake their hands. That's all they did, shake their hands. And they used to say, my word is my bond. And that's very important. My word is my bond. It showed part of a person's character. It entails you being honest, not only with yourself, but with the group that you're joining. Remember, all pleasures and vows entail loyalty. If we don't have any of that, then why even get involved with an organization of any type? Especially a Leninist party that looks at each member as watching the back of the next. So I'm going to stop right there. The other thing is the cultural overlay. We have been subjected for many decades to people, our, in quotes, model or role figures, lying, cheating, not keeping promises, and we don't have role models to look up to anymore. So if it's okay say for Bill Clinton or anyone else that you can think of, then why do I have to set a higher standard? It's sad, but we have become all individuals, and it's like, what's in it for me if no one else is doing it? 
And I think that that is why no one cares that much about their personal reputation. And it doesn't appear to me that anyone really cares if other people trust them or not, or trust their word. That's my view on it. Honesty. We have people who joined our party who interviewed, who signed that pledge, and they went and formed factions against the policies of the party. So the question becomes, were they being honest? And the answer is no. It says very clearly that we're Marxist-Leninist party. It says very clearly that we're a party of democratic centralism. Those are the pillars of what our party is about. But we have people that join us that don't know what that means, or they're not being honest with us. That's very damaging, because when you join, you've got to be honest and accept that. When I look at these four words, vow, pledge, promise, contract, I see them all as as synonyms, but they don't carry the same weight, and they come from different places. And I think the different places they come from is where our obligation lies with them. And when we say vow, I think that comes from our spiritual obligation. When we say pledge, it's our societal obligation. Promise is our personal obligation. And contract is our legal obligation. So when we say we pledge ourselves to the party, we sign our name and we give our pledge, we are pledging ourselves our societal selves to help out our class, our people, and our obligation is to our society and to our community. And that's what we should be thinking about when we're pledging ourselves to the party. I think there is an ideological component to what we've been seeing. When we've been reading left-wing communism and infantile disorder, I think one of the crucial lessons of that book, which is very relevant to our own struggle, that we've been learning through practical experience is that this infantile left communist indignation to things that individuals feel are too great of a difference between their own individual ideology and that of the party, which causes them to tear themselves away from the party to stop acting as a collective whole. And I think the thing that's giving that impetus is the very prevalent handicraft mentality that the U.S. has had and has infected its labor movement for many decades, if not almost a century. William Z. Foster talks about it as being kind of like the cause and the grower of dual unionism. It was basically people who were trying to be more revolutionary than their peers and trying to start their own revolutionary trade unions as a way to combat the reactionary trade union leadership. But in reality, the way forward is to combat the reactionary trade union leadership within the trade union. And it's not to separate yourself from the workers. I think we're in our party because we love the working class and we love the work that we do. As revolutionaries, we love it. And that's why we do it. Because it comes from our heart, it comes from our soul. It's who we are. Che actually said that somewhere, the revolutionary Che. He said, let me say at the risk of seeming ridiculous that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. And I think that's what's missing. People always associate revolution and what we do with violence. And I don't think that that's healthy. 
I think that what we have to understand is that the violence is brought to us every day by this capitalist. About what Che writes about being motivated as a revolutionary by revolutionary love and love for the people and that sort of work. And I wanted to recommend to people that they read Socialism and Man in Cuba, which you can find on Marxist.org by Che. And I just think that there are people who are in Latin America specifically and in Argentina, which is, you know, where Che is from, furthering his theories on what the new man or new woman is under socialism and how they develop this rich, moral, motivating aspect to who they are. And I think it's definitely something we ought to incorporate into our work because if not, then you're kind of a stick in the mud. And I think working class people can sense that if you don't have that love under what you do. The part about why people join the party and then within like two or three months, they wind up leaving. As someone who's 24, I've only been in the left for about the last five or six years, so still young. I think a lot of people are still finding exactly what I personally believe and finding the party that's right for me and reflects my beliefs. And of course, also just finding a good group of people to work with. So perhaps a little bit of why we might see some people who join and then wind up leaving for maybe a short period of time might just be because they're in that place where they're finding what works out best for them and what they believe in. I'm sure that a good deal of people might not take it as seriously as others, and I do think that's a shame, at least from my own experience, that's where people maybe my age might still be. They're just finding something that works out best for them. The talk of vow and it not being used and falling out of favor and how stuff like that isn't as common in society anymore, it did actually remind me of one synonymous contract word that still does hold some considerable significance, at least in an official capacity, oath. Doctors all take the Hippocratic Oath, and when you go into a court, you are put under oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and even the president has to take the oath of office. And those things are things that our country definitely does still romanticize and very much hold with high regard, even if they do not always follow through on them, but then they just find ways to dance around, no, 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 I didn't break the oath because this reason. There is no organization that doesn't have some kind of an attrition rate. There's something called the French Foreign Legion, which as a young boy I dreamed of joining someday before I realized what it really was. It's a military that anyone can join as long as you're physically fit. You go to France, you knock on the door, and you come in. And what they've noticed is that a lot of people after only a couple of weeks just straight up, you know, ditch their gear and leave after they get inside the Legion because they realize what it was in there. So I just want to say that no matter what, no matter how big we get, we will always have some rate of desertion. I think a lot of people, honestly, if they join the party voluntarily and then they leave two or three months later, they probably didn't know what they were signing up for to begin with we got sensationalist culture here in America, and everyone wants to be out there. They want to be active. They want to be seen as someone who's doing good. So they might join an organization such as ours, and, oh, one week I'm a communist, the next week I'm an anarchist. People who have no ideological roots or foundation 
to what they're doing. I think that's a big problem. And also, there's just deep-rooted cynicism and mistrust of oaths and vows and things like that among the younger people. A lot of people see that as, quote-unquote, toxic, even if it's something that was begun with voluntarily. I would just like to speak to why I think that vows and things are not taken as seriously by the younger generation is to do with the things that a lot of us thought were promised to us, like work hard and you'll get ahead, go to school and play fair, and these things we saw not come true. And instead of people realizing that that has to do with capitalism, some people just turn very cynical. And so they stop, they turn their back on things like promises or trust. They don't feel like they can trust. So then they don't give their trust or aren't to be trusted themselves. The reason that people don't seem to treat promises, vows, pledges, stuff like that seriously, a lot of our first introduction to those things are stuff like the Pledge of Allegiance, contracts at work, bank loans, bank applications, stuff like that. And generally speaking, people don't become anti-capitalist because those pledges went well. And so we end up developing the severe mistrust of pledges on top of the deeply ingrained individualism that we have. Everybody is taught it's a dog-eat-dog world. You have to look out for number one, stuff like that, which is very anti-collectivist in nature, which also makes things difficult. Just some of my thoughts on what I've seen with some of my fellow young people in terms of their attitude towards movements in general. Not much dedication because people who I know, they don't tend to take that stuff seriously when they make themselves an obligation. I actually had to learn about vows and pledges myself through experience with college. I'm getting financial support from my mom, and I've made a unconditional vow slash pledge to do good in school and pass and graduate, which I've been upkeeping very well. And the pledge I signed, I do take that very seriously when it comes to this party. I'm glad I'm listening to this. Very interesting. I have forgotten something. When I started teaching in the public school system in middle grades, 1970, when I started, by 1982, we started something new in the classroom. And I've forgotten this because I had special education classes, and I didn't use it too often. But I remember, and it was an attempt to form a contract. A student will form a contract with the teacher, and it was because they were not used to doing it, as some of the comrades mentioned previously. And the contract could run anywhere between, I vow, I promise to do X, Y, and Z in my schoolwork. If I'm at a 70 student now, I will try to be a 75 student or a 78 percentage student. And in return for that, I will get from the school and from the teacher encouragement, rewards, etc. So there was contracts that were started, even in the New York City school system, because a whole two generations didn't use that word anymore, didn't understand what it meant. The other thing I want to mention about tonight's response is the word loyalty. That word, I see it as directly connected with a promise, with a vow, with an oath. There's a certain amount of loyalty, and I don't find that in people coming into our party, not just our party, in the left. 
But in the 30s and 40s, when people came into the movement, there was a loyalty to the party, so much so that when the party leadership was attacked, the first thing that the rank and file did on their own, with encouragement from the district organizers, is to form support committees for their leaders, to defend their leaders, to show loyalty to the party. On the idea of loyalty to the party, I know that when I joined, I knew I had a lot to learn. And what I can dedicate myself to most is simply just learning more about theory and the history of our party and the former CP USA. And I think really understanding that most of the biggest strides we've made and in terms of international communism in general have been from those who have dedicated years and decades of their life to work in the struggle against capitalism. And I think a lot of people probably do get caught up in oh, I'm going to be a communist, and not really truly understand that her work is a massive undertaking, and it will take decades of all of our collective energy and work put into this, and believing that we are right, knowing that we are right, and looking to the past Soviet experience, and Comrade Angel is absolutely correct in understanding that individualism that we're all basically taught here from day one in America is not going to lead us to victory. It has to be collectivism. In terms of what role the individual plays, what it can best do for the party, we're working towards a common goal, right? We're working all towards, as a party at least, socialist revolution, proletarian revolution as an end result. And we all have different life experiences to some degree, at this point at least, different ideas of exactly what that end result looks like. And our goal is to work together as individuals towards the common advancement of the collective, not for some abstract idea or because we think it's right, but it's for the advancement of the working class as a whole. So really the best thing, in my opinion, that the individual can do is self-examination in how your individual role plays in the party towards this common goal. And if your individual role is hindering it, or if you believe others are hindering it, look at how to best change that to work towards that common goal. Because what I see a lot of times is people with this individualist mindset, they're more or less looking for, well, what's actually best for me? Maybe this is an example of bourgeois thinking, but is there a point where it's correct for an individual or many individuals to leave the party? And if so, what situation would that be? That's a perfect question. Because I've shared this question with people, and it has to do with democratic centralism, which we haven't mentioned yet. We have eight points of unity, which very few parties talk about, which Lenin said it's going to be the defining factor between the Bolshevik Party and all the other parties in Russia, and that is democratic centralism. And he uses as the famous example when he's in front of the crowd in Petrograd, which later became known as Leningrad, he held up his hands, and there's paintings of this, and he held up his hand and he showed his fingers. He said each finger could do so much, but when you do the fingers together, what do you have when all your fingers are together? You have a fist. And he said that fist is much stronger than each of the individual fingers separately, and therefore that fist will smash capitalism. 
And that's when he begins his discussion of democratic centralism, what it is. Once the party comes to a decision, whether it is correct or incorrect, that has to be stressed. Whether you as an individual think it is correct or incorrect, it's not the issue what you think or what I think. It's what the decision of the collective thinks. If the collective goes in a certain direction, under a bourgeois organization, each person has the right to disagree with that. You don't have that in a Bolshevik party. You don't. When you join that party, you understand that once there is a vote and you lose that vote, you still carry on what the majority says for that vote. That is the distinguishing factor between a Bolshevik party and a non-Bolshevik party. Not anything else, not revolution, not how many fairies dance on the head of a pin, the famous thing from Trotsky. No, that's not. It's not theory, ideology. It's democratic centralism. And that's important to understand. Many people say they agree with that. When they lose the first vote, guess where they are, comrades? They're out the door. That's why I don't understand why they even make a vow or a pledge to democratic centralism when they have no intention of keeping it, mainly because of the impression of bourgeois baggage of individualism against them. And so therefore, that's the second point, which is just as important. When should people leave a Bolshevik party? And the answer is only one. They leave the Bolshevik party when the ideology of the party that they joined changes from one to another, in many cases, to the opposite. Let me give you examples. Everybody that joined this party had eight points of unity. Every single one is ideological. Next question, which I found out, I was shocked to find out, what is the definition of ideology? I found out comrades did not know. One comrade said to me, if a building is burning and I have to get out of that building, I want you all listen to this analogy. My ideology is to get out of the building. That's not correct. That is not your ideology. Your tactic, your strategy is to get out of the burning building. Not your ideology. The fact that someone would say such a thing to me, who claims that they're leaving because of that, tells me they don't know what an ideology is. So everyone on this phone call, including newer people, is very clear. Ideology is a world view. Write that down if you have to. Ideology is a world view. The view of capitalism and a class struggle with the working class. That is our worldview, period. Tactics and strategy change according to how things change, the way Marx said. Nature is constantly changing. What was true yesterday may not be true today. Why? Because 
the conditions change, the reality changes. And when reality changes, the truth changes. What was true one time, it may not be true another time. And that makes us go into tactics and strategy. Nobody should ever leave any communist party that is Marxist-Leninist because they disagree with strategy and tactics. Never. So in 1943, the CPUSA voting to change its direction from a party to an association, that was tactics. That was not an ideological shift. If the association had a different analysis of the struggle between capitalism and the working class, different than when they were the CPUSA, then it would be ideological, but it wasn't. It was purely tactics and strategy. So what they did is they voted, and nobody in their right mind, in large numbers at all, left that party. They held their cards high at the Congress, which they called a convention. They held their party cards high, and they voted to, quote-unquote, dissolve the party in its present form and set up an association. Two people in the leadership voted against that. One was a comrade named Dunn. I think it was William Dunn. And the other one was William C. Forster. They did not leave the party. They stayed, and they waited for a time in the future which would change, which they can then bring up their view again. I hope everyone sees the difference between a tactical change and an ideological change. What happened in the CPUSA? When Gorbachev came in, they actually changed their ideology. They started to go soft on the class struggle issue. The year 1991, there was a convention of the CPUSA, and there was a split. The split people left over ideology. They said that it was wrong for the American Party to be closely connected with the first party of the world of socialism, the Soviet Party. And they felt that economically, Centralized planning was wrong, and that Gorbachev was right with his views of perestroika, which was a market economy. That was what perestroika was based on. So therefore, they left over ideological reasons. It makes sense, but you do not leave over tactics and strategy. This is an important distinction, an important question. You do not leave over any other reason. Otherwise, you would be leaving every week a new group will be forming. And what does that show us? Well, if you look at a graveyard, comrades, the graveyard is strewn with so many failed attempts to form a communist party, one after another. And each tombstone has a different name and a different date. It is scary. That is why we have candidacy. Basically, one is not a member of the party until they finish their candidacy. So anybody leaving as a candidate is not leaving the party. I hope that helps, too. About individualism, 
I believe from personal experiences, I think it's one of the worst bourgeois baggages out there because it's so ingrained in our culture and it's ingrained into everybody's mind of this country. It's very difficult to combat because it's just so deeply ingrained like anti-communism is where I live at. The way how I fought it was my brother constantly getting on to me about making too much noise or leaving things that bother him. So I start thinking more considerate and less about me, 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 and more about us. Also, have, I think self-criticism is also a very important thing to have to combat individualism. On our website, we have a quote from Bertolt Breck. And if new person hears it tonight, it's worth it to be repeated. And you can apply it to those that are in the party fighting for their class. And it goes something like this. There are those who struggle for one day, and they are good people. There are those who struggle for a week, and they are better. There are those who struggle a year, and they're really great people. There are those who struggle their whole life, and they are the indispensable ones which means the working class party needs those that struggle their whole life. They're the ones that will always be there. They're the continuity between one generation and the next. They are the stability of a party, of an organization, those that are always there. Compare those that are there who have given their lives for our class from God knows how long, from the time during the Tsar to the time of building socialism to the time of fighting against fascism, etc. So the continuity, the stability, let's call it a life commitment. Compare that to someone who comes into the party and stays for two months and then leaves. Compare the two of them. Who are the ones that our class needs? Who are the ones that do produce historical changes in society, the one or two or three-monthers or the ones for life, the life commitment, what I used to call the long haul. So if you're not in this for the long haul, question has to be asked, then why are people in it? Why do they waste their time? And to be honest, they're wasting our time to invest time and effort in these individuals who have no idea of continuity or stability. So that's another question that I want people to think about. Why are they here? They signed a pledge. Did they sign that pledge honestly? Being a member for two months is not being a veteran in the PCUSA or any other party. It is basically a person who's a candidate of a political party. That's it. Candidates come and go. So I want people to think about that term, life commitment, on our website, the Bertalk Brett description of what we should be doing in the party and in the movement. I hope new people have thought about this after we've discussed it now. And the next thing I'm going to go into it is part of this. It's a bigger part of it, but it's part of it. In our society and in most Western countries, what is the role of the individual? That's a question. 
What is the role of what we call individualism? That's another question. What is the effects of individualism on party work? How does it hamper it? How does it help it? Think about that. Is it always negative? Is it always positive? Compare individualism with anti-collectivism. What is the view of this society on the collective? How strong is its stress? How is it not stress? Etc. And the last thing is the idea of what Gasol called bourgeois baggage. B-A-G-G-A-G-E. Baggage. Baggage is what you carry around with you. And the famous quote that I remember Gus said, and it stayed in my mind for 60 years, and it was basically something like this. We carry this baggage with us, whether or not we realize it. It's ingrained in us as we're brought up in this society. The bourgeois baggage of individualism, of the individual knows more than the collective, that the individual is put on a pedestal while the collective, the working class, is not. And that's basically what I got from Gus, that we have to understand all the decisions we make. We think we're making them with a free mind. We're not. We're making it because we've been influenced over the generations that we're alive on what those positions are usually about ethics and morality. And some of it comes from religions, and some of it doesn't. Angela made a really poignant comment, distinction between individualism and collectivism. And at least in my experience, and if people have different experiences, I'd like to hear it, but it's not so much that they place individualism first and collectivism second. It's that collectivism is completely sidelined. It's tarnished, it's tarred and feathered, it's thrown in the dumpster, it's left out to dry. It's thrown in the freezer for 4,000 years. It's completely devoid of any sort of analysis that I think a lot of people who are lacking class consciousness have. And I think it's a matter of not just saying that collectivism is more important than individualism, but it's our job to dig it up from the grave because collectivism, especially in America and broadly in what we would consider Western society, it's been completely buried and completely destroyed. So it's really our job as communists to resurrect it. Considering, as Angela put it, the baggage of individualism that comes with us as we enter a collectivist body like a communist party, we talk about in American society there being all of these mechanisms which build individual character within people. What would mechanisms within our party be that could build collectivist character within our members? I think the best place for that mentality to be built is through the practical activity of the club in its goals and in its struggle with the workers of its area. As for the party at large, I think it's very similar, but on a larger scale, perhaps on larger campaigns requiring great coordination and organization, as well as appeals to the party and the membership at large to come together to achieve a common goal. To what the comrade just said, I totally agree. I think it's also important that when we participate in these party activities, that's, to me at least, what underlies a collectivist mentality is a network of genuine social bonds. And so it shouldn't be an indifferent engagement in these party activities, but an attempt to use it as an opportunity as well to build social bonds with comrades of the party. 
those clubs that succeed, those organizations that succeed, it is because they have been able to value the collective. That is why we have uneven development across the nation. Some groups get it. We can look at our own successes. I'm sure everyone can think of a particular club or a particular chapter that is doing wonderful and is setting the standard. The vast majority of us, if not all of us, were born in the United States and grew up in the United States and have been exposed and propagandized with this individualist, liberal culture every single day. And even though we feel obligated or love the communist movement, we still have to continue to battle that every single day. It's a self-cultivation that's never, ever going to stop because we're never, ever going to perfect it. And it's important to really stress that to other newer people, to the movement, to really drop that liberal and individualist baggage because it's just going to keep hurting us further and further, especially those who use it to gain a lot of clout, a lot of popularity online, even though they don't really know a damn thing about what they're talking about. On the idea of baggage and bourgeois individualism, and I think it's probably fair to say that most of the comrades on the line right now have all gone through their own personal process. Personally speaking, I went through a process where slowly my preconceived notions about reality and the world and my place and our place living in the imperial core, and it took a lot of reading and a lot of work and a lot of time and self-reflection to shed that baggage of these things that I never really felt like I subscribed to them, but I felt like they were all around me and I couldn't explain why just didn't make sense to me. And it was just very hard to shed that individualism in Vietnam. They're taught from a very young age that individualism is a bad concept and that we need to work for the whole about anti-collectivism and its effect on party work. And I think that's a great way of thinking about individualism and that hostility to the collective because I notice sometimes people who are not in the party do not understand why a party member would put in so much work into the organization or why they'd make such an effort to attend meetings and follow through with their promises when it's not work, it's not any obligation in the sense that somebody's telling you to do it, you're just doing it on your own. And I think that's because most people see an organization like that and they only think school or the workplace and none of those things are things that I did of my own volition. So people have a really negative idea of collectivism. They only associate it with these like really coercive and hostile institutions. So I think what we have to do is provide that example and think what Comrade said is really good we're resurrecting collectivism for Americans and showing them that it's a good way forward. For me, when it comes down to the general liberalism in our society today and struggling against that, I think it's always best to point out how in socialist societies, say through the Communist Party of China's doing, or say like with Vietnam, what was brought up as an example, and how they show that the collective is good and how that working within the collective system is good and the benefits that it brings and what people can reap from that and how you don't have a collective without the individuals, but if we're just sticking to this individualist mentality and we're not staying committed and we're not staying honest, as was brought up earlier, it's really undermining everything else, and it goes against a lot of what's being done. I'm glad that some people are stepping up from their shyness 
and are saying anything. I think there's a fear that people have, especially when they're new, that they're going to say something wrong. How else do we learn except through the mistakes we make? Some of us, and I could be guilty of this, make mistakes and we don't learn from it. That's not a good thing. Like the donkey on the road, every time passing the same part of the road on the side of the mountain, falls into a hole, gets up and continues the journey. Coming back, falls in the same hole. Doesn't learn anything from one mistake or another. So there's nothing wrong with saying something and that it's not a correct thing you're saying because you also are giving yourself an opportunity to learn and you could then look back a year from now or five months or whatever and said, I remember when I thought that. I remember that. And it's an interesting point showing how we do progress, even as individuals. Now, I had mentioned individuals before. Is it always a negative thing? And the answer is no. For example, incentive. Incentive politically in a political party from an individual is needed. If all the people in the party follow the leadership and they don't have any thoughts of their own, how is that going to push the party forward? I don't think it can. So we need individual ideas, thoughts, and an intention to carry it out. There's a tipping point between individual incentive and then going against democratic centralism of the party. And that's the next thing I wanted to bring up, democratic centralism, what it is. I have found that, in theory, people love it. When it comes to practice, you see them running out the door. Two examples I heard. One example a year ago came from somebody who left. Eventually, they came back a year later. In a year, they learned a lot, and they realized what they had done a year before was not correct. They basically said they realized they don't believe in democratic centralism. Why? Because there was a discussion and a vote, and they lost the vote. So is that what it means? When you lose a vote, then all of a sudden you leave and you don't believe in democratic centralism? Or is it only a case that when you vote with the majority, they, we love democratic centralism, but if we are on the losing end, all of a sudden we don't like it? What kind of nonsense is that? So the practice of democratic centralism is more important than it being on paper. The practice is very simple. If you lose a vote, and that's the vote of the party, you go along with the party vote, not your own individual mindset. It's very simple. And people don't do that. They'll make excuses. Well, when I believe that, I didn't think of certain things on an ethical level, which I have to use my conscience. Okay, you have to use your conscience. That's your decision. But when you first signed that pledge, I didn't see anything in that pledge that said you're going to follow your conscience before you follow the party decision through democratic centralism. So I don't understand that. I really don't. And it separates the wheat from the shaft. The other thing I wanted to mention is liberalism, its connection with individualism. They are tied at the hip liberalism and individualism. You cannot have one without having the other. And what is liberalism? To me, liberalism is putting every issue on an equal level with the class struggle or putting it ahead of the class struggle and saying the oppression 
of individuals for communists, for communists, is the same as the oppression of our class by the capitalists. And that I seem to be problematic in what I've come across in the communist movement. The new communist movement, the younger people now, they have a view that if they see something moral or ethic, that's the way it should be in the communist movement. And if the communist movement has a different analysis, then they'll part their ways with the communist movement. Think about what that means and what that is saying. Think about it clearly. Who is being pushed first? The, the collective or the individual? Liberalism, what it is, why it happens, how does it affect the collective? These are all questions. I think liberalism is our enemy in the communist movement specifically. It's basically what we used to say in the 1960s, do your own thing. That's basically liberalism. Do your own thing. One comrade in my old club in Staten Island, I asked him, what is his definition of socialism? And he said, everybody do your own thing. That's not, that's not socialism. It is anarchism, but it's not socialism. So let's study the connections between individualism and liberalism. We get this a lot with propaganda, like 1984, saying collectivism is everyone brainwashed, everyone thinks the same and acts the same and all this stuff. I was wondering what's the relationship between collectivism and individual freedoms from a Marxist-Leninist perspective? Very simple. Number one, the person who wrote that book, does anybody know who it is? George Orwell. Ah, very important. Please study the individual, George Orwell. George Orwell worked for the British version of the CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. MI6. This is not a rumor. This is him agreeing that he was working for them. And he was a big-time Trotskyite, big-time, a supporter of the Trotskyite movement in Spain in the 30s, active with the PUM, P-O-U-M, which was the Trotskyite movement in Spain, who attacked the Republic along with the anarchists, the syndicalists, by the way, the syndicalists, very similar to IWW, if not identical. That's their ideology. The syndicalists attacked the republic the same month, that's very interesting, when the fascists attacked the republic under Franco. So communists view it as a working together of the extreme left with the right. And that's why the person who wrote that book wrote what he wrote. He also wrote Animal Farm, another attack against collectivization. So know where the sources are coming from. Very well paid, accepted by the bourgeoisie, was George Orwell. A little more information about George Orwell. He also made up a list of people he labeled as crypto-communists, people who were Jews, as he labeled, and other people who were, as he described, anti-white and snitched on them to British intelligence. There's also a great critique by the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov on 1984. 
Stalin has a good quote on this, his writing, Anarchism or Socialism, and it goes into that. I'm going to butcher the quote because it's just off the top of my head. But the difference between anarchism and socialism and how it relates to individualism is that anarchists see the collective as being liberated only when the individual is liberated fully. And communists see the collective's liberation as integral to the individual being liberated. This book, Socialism Betrayed, I want to say it again, louder and clearer, people should write it down. It explains what happened in the Soviet Union. Because what happened in the Soviet Union is an indication of what could happen in the best-led parties of the world. Once you get away from our ideology, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, Gus said it best to a group of us once. The further away from the shore that you drift, you get taken out to sea. So if you are drifted away from the shore of Marxism-Leninism, you're going to never come back. If the currents take you, you will go out to the ocean, and you will never come back to Marxism-Leninism. And that's my experience of all the people I've met in my lifetime who came into the door of the Communist Party movement when I was in the OCP and now, and then have left. They're gone. I followed them years later. They never went anywhere. Some of them even went to Wall Street and got jobs with corporations. So the point I want to mention, socialism betrayed Roger Kieran and Thomas Kenny, written originally praising Gus Hall, when the party got rid of Gus Hall, the leadership, the current leadership of that party, and the guy by the name of Sims, who I personally know, and Sam Webb, who's no longer in the party, he actually left from leadership to the Democratic Party, the party of the bourgeoisie. That's where he went to. Shows you where he was coming from all along. Given the fact that we all come into the party with bourgeois baggage, how can we properly identify some individualist tendencies or actions that we may unknowingly be portraying or enacting? Is it just going against the decisions made by the collective under democratic centralism? Or are there other examples of individualist acts? That's a very good question. I would like to add to that, is the leadership always correct? Now, the answer has to be a resounding no. Just look at Gorbachev, and there you have an answer. Is the leadership always correct? Of course not. But individualism is something that's so easy to tell. It's when you know with your mind that the decision that was made was correct, but personally, there's something eating at you that's saying, I don't know if that was correct. To me, that's an indication where individualism lays a seed where it overtakes the mind, in my opinion. That's an indication of that. Some people that joined, joined for the wrong reasons. Some of them like to have a tag, hey, I belong to a communist party. Well, that's a problem. Some of them say, this looks like fun. I think I'll check it out. 
and be entertained. So what happens is the other third who might be in there to really try and make change have to deal with the other two-thirds. And it is amazing how many times one-third reaches out to the two-thirds and comes up wanting. So if you want to have a good idea as to how any organization you're involved in, when there is silence, when anyone says, would you volunteer, you have your answer. What is bourgeois baggage and what is collectivism and working towards a goal? The whole class basically sums up the need for democratic centralism in a Marxist party to keep it strong and to keep a party acting in unity, even though we may disagree with each other or even may disagree with a majority decision that the party makes, we are still obligated, there's that word again, to act as per the majority decision of the party. And that's really important in a Leninist party. Looking back when I used to read Trotsky's writing, how very smug he came across and how very individualistic he was in his own writings and how he came across as he was the only one who was right. He was so correct. He was so right. And yet when he would take of Lenin, he would often contradict Lenin. Say, for example, in Results in Prospects and Permanent Revolution, he discussed his own views contrary to that of what was being presented by actual Bolsheviks, and he went directly against them and actively worked to undermine. With his own groups during and before the Second World War, he actively pursued groups that went to undermine the Bolsheviks. And his own individualism pretty much built these groups, the right opposition, and they worked very much to undermine the party and work to undermine the Bolshevik revolution. It's interesting how people who are very much in individual mindsets work to sabotage in the case of Trotsky. And then there's anarchists, and I've heard stories on the internet of anarchists who are of a petty bourgeois mindset, and they work to actively undermine socialist organizations because they push, as Angelo had stated, everybody does their own thing. In which case, there's a lot of people when they don't shed their liberalism and then they become involved in organizations, they think these mindsets, when they come from specific people who are opposed to the working class and they push ideas that conform more to falling in respect with the bourgeoisie and they work to undermine working class organizations, and then they don't go with the democratic centralist mindset when they don't get their way or their own words aren't taken as absolute or law. We mentioned earlier talking about is the leadership always right? And the answer is no, the leadership is not always right. So the question would be then, if the leadership is not right, if we feel the leadership is not right, what is the correct channel that a communist party or an individual in a communist party should take without trying to resort to individualism? I can answer that by showing the history. The majority, the vast majority, 99% of the people at the party meeting in 1943 of the CPUSA voted to dissolve the party and form something called the Communist Political Association, the CPA. And what it was actually was not dissolving the party, but changing over from a party structure to an association, which is not the same as the party. Lenin said, we need a party of a new type, not an association. And so that was done, and I was told by someone who was at that meeting 
that they held up their cards at the Congress to show how they voted with tears in their eyes. I'll never forget that one woman, Fanny Heckman, who told me that. She was a charter member of the party when she was 19 years old, in 1919 when the party was formed. And she was a charter member. And in 43, she was at a Congress where she held up a card and she said, I had tears in my eyes. And yet she voted where she felt the leadership was going. So there's a case where one or two or three did not vote that way. They voted against it. Now, did they leave the party? The answer is no. So what did the minority do? They stayed in the party to the next Congress when they brought it up again. And that's your answer, comrade. How do we do it? What is the road to follow? We do what we've always done. We don't leave the party. We believe in democratic centralism. So we stayed in. That's the way it's supposed to be done at a Congress where you have a pre-Congress discussion period. About democratic centralism? A little example that's interesting. Lenin, after the Bolshevik Revolution, a couple of months later in January, February 1918, they had peace negotiations with Germany and the Germans, they had given bad, bad conditions for the peace. And Lenin said, well, we don't have a choice. We need to accept it. But the majority of the Central Committee said, no, we're not. We want to do a war, a revolutionary war against Germany. Lenin said, no way. We're too weak. And Lenin was right. And Trotsky and others, Stalin was right, along with Lenin. And some others were on the wrong side. But there was a majority. But Lenin, he kept trying and trying to explain to them, and he won the day after a while. At one time, he even said he was going to resign. Of course, they said, no way, and he won the day. They listened to him, and they knew they were wrong. They changed their vote. And then, of course, thank God, they did not go to war against Germany, else the USSR would have ended in 1918, March, not in 1991. So I often hear that Marxism-Leninism, one of its strong suits is because it engages in self-criticism. I'm wondering how that idea squares with what Comrade Angela was talking about with faith and trust in the party. If you go back to the very beginning with criticism and self-criticism, it's done on different levels. It could be done on the level of your village, your club, but it's also done on a higher level. It could be both ideological and non-ideological. It could be on tactics, could be on strategy. And that's all encouraged in the party because there's a reason. We assume and hope that through criticism and self-criticism, we will make the party, the machinery of the party, more effective in their struggles fighting capitalism. We do not, and again, do not deal with the issue of criticism or self-criticism that's used in a bourgeois sense as attacking an individual leader, an individual member, or in attacking the party itself. Trotsky, for example, could have clothed his activities 
as criticism of the leadership of the party. So we have to be real about this. If it helps the party produce a better machine, I think it's valid. If it doesn't, then it's dangerous. It has to be looked at that way. How does it help the working class? One thing that I try to keep in mind is that membership in a Marxist-Leninist organization is not an identity that you carry like a membership card, but a framework of continued action. You have to remain in motion or you'll stagnate and either fall out of the party or drag the party down into the mud with you. Comparing ourselves to the old party, how do we make sure that we don't make the same mistakes? My take. Number one, all the changes that came in our movement and our ideology always seem to have come from the top. Jay Lovestone, General Secretary of the party in the United States, 1928, left the party, became active in building the Socialist Workers' Party, which was a breakaway party, which was a Trotskyite party, still exists, one of the first in the world, then eventually broke with them and went to the American CIA. He winded up with the Central Intelligence Agency. And this seems to be the route of all the ultra-left that leaves the Bolshevik movement. Look at them all, the neocons. Where do you think they came from? They were the Trotskyites of the 50s, all the neocons today. So my answer to that is be careful of leadership. Don't assume that everything a leader does is correct. At the same token, that doesn't mean you become anti-leader. I'm saying become weary of it. Remember the quote from Marx, question everything. It doesn't mean oppose everything. It means question it. So when I tell you X, Y, or Z, Google it. Find out more information on your own to see if what I said was correct or incorrect. If I said was correct, it will show you that the leadership has built a reputation as being honest. If it shows you that the leader was incorrect, then you have to be weary. If they were incorrect here, they could be incorrect somewhere else. So try to use some kind of logic and cerebral understanding of what individuals are saying. And the third part of that is how we can prevent it from happening. If we stop revising our ideology, the biggest danger I found is the idea of, quote, this is a new situation. We never had this situation before. Therefore, not that we're going to change our tactics, which is logical, but we're going to change our ideology. That is not logical. So whenever they start changing their ideology, communist, because of a different situation, this idea of new thinking, think outside the box, question that word and wording, because what do they mean by that? If they mean change our ideology, then run for the hills, stay away or pick up a weapon and fight that mentality. But if we don't have our ideology of class struggle, of Marxism-Leninism, as done by Stalin and Comrade Lenin, if we don't have that, then we're nothing. We are nude. We're empty. We don't have any clothes on. 
That is our identity, not winning. Some of them, I hear them say, well, we've always lost. We want to start winning. Winning what? Winning playing a game with the bourgeoisie, with their rules, and then winning at their rules? What is that about? It was Lenin who discussed polemics. Polemics goes against the idea that all the left should join and work together in a happy family and sing Kumbaya. Lenin shows why that's incorrect. And so I suggest you read what Lenin wrote about polemics with other groups in the left. Very interesting. And that's all I wanted to say about tonight's class. I hope we'll see everybody again. Thank you. Have a nice night. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.